Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are speaking to Dr. Khadija Feriman, a cultural anthropologist who studies the social, cultural and ethical implications of health information technologies, and Dr. Laura Sobola, a senior consultant at UNAI. Uh, Laura is the lead of the uh, health tech uh, stream at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening on the 9th and 12th of October online and Dr. Kadisha Feriman is one of the participants on the panel. In today's episode, Laura leads a discussion with a number of questions for Kadisha about AI, machine learning, ethical decisions and fair health and the complexities that underline it all. Kadisha's research tackles health disparities through data and aims to make it more inclusive and ethical. As Laura points out, data is easy to interrogate, but how to get at those answers that could lead us to more fairness and prevent biases? Khadija reflects on the importance of insights and touches on the usefulness of anthropological frameworks to see through power hierarchies. She shares stories from her work in which social science often merges with more technical fields to produce results that help move the needle in the right direction in making data more ethical. Lastly, they share their expectations for the Health Tech Panel and the overall Anthropology and Technology Conference. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with uh, Laura Sobola and Khadija Feriman. Hi Laura, hi Khadija. Hello. Hi there. This is our second uh, series of interviews with the participants and and hosts from the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening um, in October, uh, now digitally. Uh, but just before we go into the content of, of the work, um, I would like to kind of kick it off um, by asking you, Khadija uh, and Laura, to just shortly introduce yourself for those of our listeners that do not know who you are. Sure. Um, I, I can go ahead. Um, my name is Khadija Ferryman. I am a cultural anthropologist by training, uh, also with a background in uh, public policy research, and currently I am a professor of ethics and technology at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering, where I teach uh, the required ethics and technology course for the computer science and uh, innovation technology management students. I also uh, do research on the social, uh, ethical, and increasingly more sort of policy dimensions of um, digital health technologies. So that's me in a nutshell. Um, hi, uh, I'm Laura Sobola, and I am a data scientist and consultant at software consultancy UNI in Bristol, UK, which is also the home of the first Anthropology and Technology Conference. And my background is actually in human genetics and um, academic science, so it's been quite a long way and winded way for me uh, to become interested in responsible innovation, especially in the field of healthcare. 
I just wanted to say that the two of you kind of represent the nice interplay that also the Anthropology and Technology Conference represents, which is a data scientist and a social scientist. But before handing it over to Laura to go deeper into your experience, Khadija, I would like, if it's possible, for you to tell me and our listeners a little bit about your trajectory so far with the work that you're doing. Yeah, so um, that's a great question and a little bit um, uh, similar to what it sounds like uh, Laura's uh, background is, which is kind of a, a little bit of a winding uh, uh, road. So I, as I mentioned in my introduction, I actually started my career off in public policy research, and specifically I was looking at uh, housing uh housing discrimination and public housing transformation. And, and initially, uh, when I was doing that research, there was a lot of public housing transformation uh, going on um, in the U.S. And, and a lot of the work that I did as a public policy researcher was sort of evaluating how well those policies worked. And um, there's a number of ways, as you can imagine, that one can evaluate how well um, housing policy um is working, but one of the ways that I got particularly interested in is sort of how well um, changes in, in, in housing were impacting people's health and well-being. So one of the uh, sort of sub-studies that I worked on was looking particularly at older adults and how their health and well-being was impacted by the um, by this housing policy that uh, kind of uh, moved people out of public housing and uh, had, in some cases, they came back to redeveloped public housing uh, and, in other cases, sort of stayed in, in other places. So I really became kind of interested in what we kind of think about as the social determinants of health or the social influences of health, actually, through my uh, work in, in housing and um, through that work, um, and I worked at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., um, you know, I saw as I was doing a lot of qualitative work, I did a lot of in-depth interviewing, even though at the time I, I kind of learned on the job, I didn't have formal training. I, I did do an anthropology degree um, as my bachelor's, but, you know, didn't do much um, in-depth interviewing or that kind of social in-depth social science uh, qualitative work until... Um, I, I did that public policy research. And so two things happened there that sort of really sparked my interest in the methods, right, because I was sort of exposed to these methods on the ground um, and also sparked my interest in, as I said, this connection between all of these social, uh, cultural, political dynamics that were um, at play and kind of health and health and well-being. So after my six-year stint at the Urban Institute, I decided to go back to graduate school to kind of continue the path in anthropology that I had started as an undergraduate um, and and really started looking at, again, um, how uh, thinking about health in a sort of holistic anthropological way um, and how I actually ended up uh, on the topic that later became my dissertation was actually kind of through a, a kind of serendipity sort of by accident. I had always always been interested in, in race, um, and that interest as well um, was was peaked again through my work at the Urban Institute because uh, housing transfer, transformation in the U.S., if you um, are familiar with it, or I will, you know, just say um, there are, uh, uh, you know, racial dynamics that have to do with housing segregation. That's, you know, one of the biggest kind of policy uh, issues in the U.S., 
So, um, so I had always been interested in race. So there, I was sort of thinking about this intersection of race and policy and health. And one day at home, I saw this commercial for a medication called Vital, which was the first FDA approved uh, drug for a racial or ethnic group. And I just had so many questions. Um, you know, how could it be that, um, you know, African Americans as a group could be uh, kind of physiologically distinct enough to have a medicine that works particularly for them. And that really sort of took me down this path to sort of looking at uh, the intersection of race and genetics and social implications of genetics and the ethics of, of genet- genetics and genomic research, particularly with marginalized groups and sort of how people working in this field were trying to make the connections between genetics and, and health outcomes. So that's kind of how um, my interest uh, in this area began. And then as I was doing my dissertation research, I started to see, so I started my dissertation research around 2011, where genomics and genomic research was, you know, really kind of booming, and, and it still is, but at the time was really kind of booming as, a, as this new frontier of, of, uh, of science, sort of moving from genetics to genomics. But even as I was doing my fieldwork, I saw that um, there was even sort of an expansion going going on. So while I did my field work, there was the big change in the U.S. to electronic medical records. Health apps were being developed. Um, there was kind of the 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 you know big data. What we think of as sort of big data was really getting started. And so even though I was focused on genomics at that time, almost ten years ago, I saw that there was almost a sort of other frontier of data that other kinds of health data that was really interesting um, and had other social, ethical, cultural dimensions to investigate. Um, and so for uh, after I completed the, the dissertation on kind of looking at race and genomics and ethics, I uh, looked sort of more broadly um, and focused really on uh, precision medicine, big data, algorithms as they relate to um, health and uh, particularly, again, looking at race, uh, racial disparities in health and, and marginalized communities. So it's sort of the story sort of all connects. But, you know, at the time, I didn't start out with a uh, with a game plan, but it ended up sort of each piece in the puzzle all sort of connected. Uh, Laura, I would like to hand it over to you now to to go deeper into the specific areas of Khadija's expertise that also intersect your own. Thank you, Karina. Um, I guess uh, what might be especially interesting for the audience of Anthropology and Technology Conference may be the notion that precision medicine brings together computational science, social science, and medical research. So three, some would say, quite fairly different fields. And in your experience, Khadija, what have been some of the best ways for social scientists and computational and medical researchers to work and experiment together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and you know, I have two really good um, examples of that from my own work. So I have two um, colleagues. Um, one is Dr. Marzia Gassimi, who is a computer scientist at the University of Toronto. And another is Dr. Elaine Nsoasi, who is a computational epidemiologist at Boston University. And my collaborations with both of them, I think, um, are, can serve as, as, as good examples of the kinds of, um, the, the kinds of good, good work and sort of, um, 
insights that can happen when um, uh, anthropologists and social scientists work with people in more technical fields. And so I'll start with my collaboration with uh, Dr. Nsoasi, because that's um, we recently published uh, an article with her and a few members of her lab where um, we both have been, as I, as I mentioned, I'm interested in uh, the intersection of race and health, especially social determinants of health, uh, health disparities, and uh, Elaine and Soasi, who I, you know, met at, at a conference where I was giving a talk, I actually was giving a talk about uh, Marcel Moss and how we can think about the idea of, of data as a gift in the way that uh, Moss sort of talked about it. And she became really interested in this idea, and we kind of uh, talked about it um, together uh, during this conference. And we and we realized we had, you know, similar um, some similar uh, some similar uh, interests. So um, one of the things that we both were particularly interested in is the Black women's maternal health crisis in the U.S., where uh, black women have um, over 200% higher mortality rates than um, other uh, racial and ethnic groups. And um, we, this was a, an, an issue that we wanted to investigate. And she had started doing some work looking at reproductive issues, um, looking at health issues really um, in sort of non-traditional, using non-traditional um, epi- epidemiological data sources like social media data. So previously she had done some research looking at how you can track foodborne illness, the spread of foodborne illness on Yelp, for example. Um, so, and she had been doing some work looking at um, if we could learn anything new about miscarriage from social media. And um, we collaborated together on this project to sort of to, to analyze Twitter data, Twitter posts, to see if we could learn anything, um, learn anything interesting, really, about how um, people were talking about their experiences with miscarriage on on Twitter, and we thought, you know, this could be a good um, first step to sort of a, a longer um, road to sort of looking at uh, the issue that I, I mentioned before about Black maternal health. And so we said, well, let's let's do this as kind of uh, you know a first step and see how this see how this works. And it was it was a really great experience because um, I was able to sort of um, build and uh, build and use some technical expertise or, or some technical skills in uh, coding the Twitter data and kind of analyzing the Twitter data. Um, but we also did some, uh, I guess, more traditional sort of social scientific work where you know we read the tweets some of the subsets of tweets for themes and connected them to other literature. Um, so it was a really interesting and really fun kind of process where we brought um, some of the technical skills and some of the kind of qualitative analysis skills that, you know, I had as, from my training as an anthropologist together to produce this, um, to, to produce this research that I think does a really good job of uh, kind of using a making a good case about what we can potentially learn from a large amount of data. We had hundreds of hundreds of thousands of tweets, as well as kind of the the small data that we think about, you know, uh, social scientists, especially anthropologists typically using, where we would kind of look at, you know, a, a few tweets here and there and really analyze them and see what sort of interesting, you know, themes emerged. So, so that I think was, you know, one example of how 
uh, we can see kind of data scientists and, and anthropologists working together. Um, another is, um, like I said, with my colleague Mar- Marzia Gassimi. So again, through, you know, kind of various professional activities, we realized that we had many overlapping interests. But of course, she's a computer scientist, someone with a technical background, and I'm an anthropologist. But we both realized that we were interested in health disparities and data and sort of um, how we can think about the ethical and social implications of data, especially as they're used in healthcare, um, and especially how they would, uh, these data can impact marginalized communities. And so one of the things that we did last year was we uh, put together, we realized, so she was having these discussions in her computer science world with her computer science colleagues. I was having these discussions in my social science world with my social science colleagues. And we realized that although that there were people on, uh, you know, in each, uh, in each discipline or each set of disciplines interested in these issues that they hadn't really ever been brought together. And sometimes, you know, we would sort of mutually invite each other to conferences, but they didn't kind of, you know, quite seem like the right fit. And so what we did was we put together, um, which was to our knowledge, the first kind of interdisciplinary gathering of, of, researchers interested in fairness in machine learning in health. And we did that uh, last year. And it, and it was great because um, we had presentations that were more on the technical side, as well as um, presentations from others who were social scientists. We had a clinician uh, give a presentation, which again goes back to your point, Laura, of you know, with precision medicine, we really do see these multiple fields coming together. You have the social science, you have the various technical sciences, but you also have uh, clinicians as well. And so we were able to bring all of those perspectives together. Um, And so that, I think, was a real success and a real way to sort of initiate connections, conversations um, that we hope will sort of build to to more meetings like that and and potential kind of uh, grants and and collaborative work in the future. Hmm. Yeah. It, it really sounds like it's the perfect example of how um, they, uh, how data empathy actually comes into play because I have worked with health data as well and I happen to have some domain knowledge. However, I would not really have a domain knowledge being a patient in various different situations as well as... Um, being a part of a marginalized community, I simply wouldn't have that. So going going and talking with a social scientist could be actually really helpful and not, not get me stuck in a model where I only see the numbers and the features because it's sometimes so easy to interrogate, interrogate data and get the answer you want. Especially if you know where you're trying to trying to get to. These days, if you try hard enough, I think it's possible. But obviously, I think what we all want is, is indeed fairness and is the right answer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to add to that as well, you know, um, one of the, cl- the clinician who I mentioned, Dr. Charles Aseno, who's at, you know, Montefiore, um, one of the, and I think this is another great kind of um, example as well, is that, you know, he is working on um, developing uh, algorithms for uh, stroke detection and prevention 
um, and he happens to work with a largely minority uh, community, um, you know, at his institution. And, you know, one of the great things was was through conversation with, with Marzia and myself is that, you know, we talked through um, some of the some of the pluses and, and minuses of various uh, model decisions, not just, you know, in terms of the technical side, but really in terms of, uh, you know, his, the, the patient population. So we talked about, you know, what the, the benefits of thinking about equal performance across groups and what that would mean in, in his particular, uh, with the particular pa- patient demographics that he, that he was working with. So I think, that was another example of, um, again, having that interdisciplinary conversation sort of was, was really, really helpful. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess this quite nicely leans into the conversation about the fact that precision medicine and machine learning together has a massive potential to introduce a variety of, of the, those kinds of biases that continue to exacerbate inequality simply because it's often built in the data. So how do you see social scientists and anthropologists could work together and help to reduce these biases? Yeah, so I think there are a number of opportunities for social scientists to work, um, to work with colleagues in technical fields or to even, um, to also kind of, uh, do research and, and, and raise awareness about these issues, even if, even if there isn't kind of direct, um, collaborative work. So, you know, for me, I think, when I did my uh, the fairness and precision medicine report with my colleague Michaela Pitkin, you know, when we started that research, there was um, a conversation going um, about algorithmic bias in uh, in criminal justice and in some other technologies, but not much around uh, in health um, and and about health data. And it's been really encouraging to see that since we uh, published that report that there has been a lot more um, awareness of the potential, um, not only the potential, but actually some cases, actual cases of algorithmic bias kind of happening with healthcare data. So I think, you know, that's one role for um, anthropologists in particular because, you know, we are, our, our training allows us to really get to the um to the sort of on the ground, I have a colleague at uh, Data and Society Research Institute in New York City where I did my postdoc, a former colleague of mine there, Madeline uh, Ellish, has this term uh, that she talks about AI on the ground and that it's really important to sort of see how uh, all of these uh, kind of on the ground interactions between people and data, between people and these systems as they're deployed, between people as these systems are being built. And I think those kinds of insights, those sorts of on-the-ground insights, are really important um, for anthropologists and, and others, uh, other kind of qualitative researchers to, uh, to, to collect that kind of information um, and raise up the issues that, again, may not be uh, may not be considered if we're just at the scale of kind of the data and the model. So I think that's, you know, I think that's one is, is simply kind of shining a light and uh, doing the good, 
doing the good anthropological holistic work of of um, of connecting these on the ground exchanges to these bigger issues that we see with fairness, with bias in in uh, data and and models. So that's one. And then I think the other is kind of what I've been talking about the, before, which is like direct kind of collaborative uh, work. And you know, I have seen that. Um, and again, because issues of bias and fairness, again, different from when I started doing some of this research in 2016, you know, there's a lot more awareness in the public and, you know, uh, various scholarly communities that this is an issue. And, you know, I have found that, um, you know, uh, people in uh, technical fields are becoming really more open to working directly with someone from another discipline and and uh, being open to the kinds of insights that they would have about uh, about their data, about their models that maybe you know they hadn't considered. So, for example, um, one of the the uh, an article that I just finished working on was sort of looking at uh, the FDA's. Uh, FDA's proposed guidance for using machine learning, um, using machine learning in health and sort of try the FDA trying to figure out what a proper regulatory framework would be. And right now in, in that current proposed framework, there's a lot of um, responsibility, I guess you could say, sort of given to device makers to figure to, to sort of figure things out, right? So there's a lot of responsibility on the device makers to demonstrate that they are that they use good machine learn pra- good machine learning practices there's a lot of responsibility on device makers to sort of show their real world real world model performance but actually you know in even just those two areas uh thinking about and rethinking and reframing what good machine learning practice really looks like could be a way for uh anthropologists and other social scientists to contribute right and so one of the things that i mention in in this uh in this piece is that you know thinking very explicitly about health disparities at the earliest stages of model development and various decisions along the way about how uh, these kind of seemingly technical decisions could have effects on patients, on various others who are sort of in the, um, in the, 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 the sort of impact field of, if you will, of these models is really important. And anthropologists and other social scientists can kind of help, uh, device makers, model designers sort of think through these things. And then especially on the, uh, real world model implementation piece, right? If makers of, uh, you know, AI and ML devices in health have to demonstrate to the FDA or other regulatory bodies that their, you know, models are performing in a certain way, that real world implementation, again, thinking about the real world, I mean, that's, that's our anthropologists and social scientists, that's our bread and butter, right? So we can really be, um, uh, partners in thinking through, uh, and, and sort of framing and reframing what how to even define uh, model, real-world model performance, and the kinds of things that that uh, that should be considered when we're thinking about evaluating the impacts of a model in the real world. What I find quite fascinating is that healthcare, obviously, as um, all of us know, is a heavily regulated field. So I do wonder if these kind of practices and a lot of ethical codes that are out there for healthcare and health data will ever make it into regulation, and should they, frankly? If they'll make it in, sorry, can you just say the last part of your question again? 
Yeah, if whether these um, ethical um, frameworks and uh, new machine learning practices will become part of regulations and healthcare and health data standards. Right, and yeah, that's a, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, so I think uh I it's um I would say uh yes and. So yes, I think there's definitely room because machine AI and machine learning in health is such a relatively new area. I think there are um there's definitely room for uh for data standards, for sort of new regulatory policies. So in uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Tina Broussard at Stanford, um, she's re- recently written a piece about sort of uh, minimal standards, minimum data standards that should be in place for um, health data. Um, so I think there's definitely room for, for standards, but I want us to also sort of caution um, that implementing some codes and, and standards is not gonna, gonna solve all of the, um, all of the kind of ethical or social impacts, um, of, uh, and, and potential, potential negative impacts of data, right? So, um, having some guidelines are helpful, but they will never be completely comprehensive and, and really, um, uh, and here again is where I think something, uh, an anthropological approach is actually helpful, right? Because with anthropology, one of the main uh, uh, kind of frames of analysis is sort of thinking about power and power dynamics. And um, with ethics, the way that I approach ethics, right, is that, yes, there can be guidelines and those are helpful, but those guidelines change and their resonances change depending on how uh, what the power structure is and what the power hierarchies are. And as those, you know, power hierarchies change, those ethical guidelines could become, you know, sort of, sort of more or less impotent depending on what the, the, the codes and the guidelines are. So those are a good, you know, it, they can be good, you know, touchstones, but not, uh, not the kind of end all be all, if you will. No, absolutely not. Because the one of the ways I can see ethic being approached in AI, similarly to how it's been done in medicine, and that's I guess AI generally, not even just in healthcare, is by considering it on case-to-case basis, or at least that has been um, the opinion of some of the researchers in this field. Certainly, Professor Floridi from Oxford, Oxford University. So it's it's a good it's a good question. Who should be doing this analysis? What is ethical in data science? And yeah, so I think it would. I personally think it would make a lot of a lot of sense for social scientists, anthropologists, and technologists to work together to both find those problems and hopefully solve them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I think where, again, where social scientists can really contribute is that bringing that knowledge of society, of, you know, of uh, the 
the the various uh, groups that have their own, uh, you know, culture. There's clinician culture. There's patient culture. It's different institutions have their own cultures, right? And so all of those things, uh, knowledge of those matter when you're thinking about, you know, an ethical deliberation or what kind of decision to be, you know, that can and, and can be made about a, uh, implementing a particular technology or developing a particular technology. So, um, so yeah, so just kind of underscoring your point, absolutely. Uh, so I personally do think that it is, it is not just ethics, it is also technology. Uh, actually, it, it makes no sense to make technology that doesn't respond to the actual needs of these communities, of those different communities that you mentioned. And the only way to do so is actually, actually talking to them and not just talking to them understanding them um, that obviously is very much within the main of social science I believe absolutely yeah my uh, my husband who is a clinician has often you know one of the things that he's uh, observed in his um, experience as a clinician especially as it relates to health technologies that he you know, it seems to him sometimes that it, that the, instead of starting with a clinical problem, it's sort of starting with a solution like, hey, we have this technology or, and so how can we apply it to the healthcare setting as opposed to the other way around, right? Like what are the problems? What are the clinical, um, issues, problems that need to be solved? And then is there a technology that can, uh, you know, that can be applied to, to address this? And, uh, you know, also to underscore that point as well here in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, racial disparities, racial and, and gender and ethnic disparities in, in health are staggering and have been for decades. And it would be great, um, if there was a, a sort of reorienting in terms of the impetus to develop technologies to, um, to actively, you know, d- to design technology that prioritize it that prioritizes health equity that prioritizes uh, addressing health disparities and so um, but you know often uh, or sometimes as we see kind of technology develop those are not um, those are sometimes not the 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 frames or the sort of motivations that are in mind Khadija, I'm curious what would you say are the are the barriers that prevent these two disciplines of working more closely together? Following the two of you in conversation, it just feels like such a natural match. So, so I wonder what, what keeps the two, um, apart right now? Yeah. So, you know, I hate to be, you know, too pragmatic, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is the two, uh, disciplines or, you know, like a, a tech, if we are sort of lumping technical dis- disciplines and social science disciplines together, um, but especially with anthropology, you know, the, um, the uh, reward, I guess, or the, um, the the performance are just very different, right? So, anthropology is very much a, a sort of solo researcher. Uh, 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 traditionally, has been a kind of solo researcher 
uh, type of intervention, right? This still to this day, the sort of sole authored monograph is the, um, is the mark of success for anthropology. And so, you know, for some anthropologists, it may be, uh, you know, and or even kind of if, if you're going to publish an article together, right? The kinds of journals that you might want to publish in that help with your career are not going to be the same kind of journals that you're, you know, data scientist or computer scientist colleague, uh, you know, wants to publish in to advance their career. So there, I think there really are some kind of pragmatic things about just these disciplines being very different in terms of, um, you know, career and performance and how those things are sort of assessed. Um, and, and I think it would be kind of remiss to not, you know, put that out there. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think in, you know, there's also just, you know, speaking, uh, kind of common problems of interdisciplinary collaboration, learning to having, taking that time to learn each other's language, right? To, to learn each other's sort of language and culture, right? As I mentioned earlier, you know, I have been to some technical conferences, but again, as a social scientist, right, you, you, um, it's not initially the, it may not initially feel like the, you know, the thing you want to jump right into to, you know, be the, an anthropologist presenting at a conference of all computer scientists or vice versa, right? So there are a lot of things about sort of coming to different worlds, if you will, that I think, um, can make collaboration harder. They don't make them, they, they those things don't make it impossible, but they do serve as challenges. So, um, Laura, um, after, you know, just hearing to Khadija speak about her, um, experience in this field, and, uh, I assume we will have also other speakers, uh, in the stream speaking to their experience, uh, in this space and the work that they do. I want to ask you to give me and our listeners a little bit more kind of context around that. Like, looking into the participants that, that you have now in the stream, what, what are your, yeah, what, what do you expect? What type of conversation do you expect and hope to, to have? Um... This year, Anthropology and Technology Conference is very lucky to have many fantastic speakers for the health stream. And a lot of the focus is going to be on ethics and fairness in technological and data solutions in healthcare. So I really do expect some quite potentially tough conversations, mm. like the one that we just had about the present, past, and future of the health tech development. And I'm really looking forward to also the diversity of the speakers that we have, both in terms of their background and in terms of their interest, where we have um, people who look a lot at the security. Well, we also uh, will have speakers who will talk more towards the ethics and their own experiences. So since this is quite a unique conference on its own, it, these people from various backgrounds, it is fascinating to be there. I was at the conference actually last year, and I absolutely loved it. The quality of the conversations was very different. Mm. And you get to meet, as a technologist, a lot more social scientists, 
uh, anthropologists and creative technologists, which was something that I didn't, which was a profession I didn't know existed before that, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you, maybe maybe it's a little bit not not politically correct questions, but uh, from 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 the conversation that 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 I observed between you and Khadija in in this in this um, uh, uh, in this episode, it seems to be a lot of like like uh, on the positive side of the intersection of technology and social science. Like I could I could clearly see in the conversation the spaces where you complemented and added value to each other's perspectives. I I, I wonder if. Can we see more of the other side, the friction, the tension uh, in the in the panel, or do you expect that, or is it is that something that that you find also valuable to pursue in these in this um, in these spaces of interaction? That's a that's a really good question because one thing is um, basically what happens is that. If there is too much of this friction, that conversation never happens. And so very often when it does happen, it tends to be between people who already agree. So you don't necessarily see a lot of that friction and it, it is hard to do. But I absolutely believe that there is a space for that. So for anyone who feels, I don't know, some quite strong views towards one way or the other, I would definitely encourage them to come to the conference and have a discussion because I think both um, the members of the speakers of the health stream as well as the participants of the conference would certainly love to have a good, well-rounded discussion. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you because, you know, also from friction actually you do build the energy to to create right to create content uh, so you do need that friction but you can't just stay in it without moving into a space um, conversation and, and debate so yeah maybe maybe also from my end is that also an invitation you know for for those that come but also for those that will be on the panel to kind of uh, stay with that space of friction and 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 finds ways into turning it into knowledge or or or, or sense make as, as a kind of an engine for sense making no oh abs absolutely that i i do think there should be there should be that friction because without it we won't learn each other's language and we won't have that fierce conversation which is where new ideas grow and that might may well be a reason why this conversation isn't happening yeah. as much as as people are apprehensive about going in mm. too deep where i think you know there might be some really one-dimensional views mm. to both of these groups yeah, that's really nice. Um, that's, that's it's a different. It's it's a it's a great kind of invitation uh, to be both a participant. So, any thoughts that you would have for for those of our um, listeners that are considering to to join? I'd say um, bring your experience, bring an open mind. And be ready to learn and be le and also learn teach other people. It, it it's an exciting it's going to be an exciting day of 
I think something for everyone. And definitely suggestions are always welcome. So I think Dawn, the organizer of the conference, would also love to grow this to reflect the audience um, and what are they need, their needs and views and to really further this conversation as, as much as we can. For those of our listeners, uh, I'm going to put in the show notes uh, all the links, all the details to the conference um, so that you can go check it out. And uh, thank you very much for being with us today, uh, Laura and Khadija, and can't wait to see you at the conference. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.